All right, 2 Samuel chapter 2, we're going to jump right in. It happened after this that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, Where shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess, and Abigail the widow of Nabal the Carmelite. And David brought up the men who were with him, every man with his household. So they dwelt in the cities, plural, of Hebron. Then the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. And they told David, saying, The men of Jabesh-Gilead were the ones who buried Saul. So David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, You are blessed of the Lord. You have shown this kindness to your Lord, to Saul, and have buried him. And now may the Lord show kindness and truth to you. I also will repay you this kindness because you have done this thing. Now, therefore, let your hands be strengthened and be valiant, for your master Saul is dead, and also the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. All right, as we go through this chapter this morning, there is a lot of history to press into, and there's a lot of undertones that are going on. So if you remember, we closed the chapter in Saul's life last week with his death and his burial. So it's turning the page into David as the anointed king. We've sat in that entire story up to this point. I'm not going to rehash it so that we can move forward. But what we need to remember in the immediate context is the nation of Israel was just, just suffered a great defeat at the hand of the Philistines. So when you sit in the political nature of the land, the promised land of Israel, it's always been a mess. It's been a mess since Shem, Ham, and Japheth got off the ark and their descendants went out into the world. There's always been conflict in this area. When you look at it on a map from a high level, it's really easy to see why it's a land that bounces back and forth between the authority of other major kingdoms in this area of the world. To the east of the Jordan River, as you get into the nation of Jordan today, and then you get into Saudi Arabia, high level view, it's desert. There's no, there's no way that you can sustain large communities in that desert because it is just a barren wasteland. But to the north, you have what's called the Fertile Crescent between the, the Tigris and Euphrates River. This is where the Assyrian nation was founded. This is where the Babylonian nation was founded. Very fertile. So it allows for large populations to grow up and for those populations to consolidate into different kingdoms. Now, kingdoms are always looking to grow their economy, grow their territory, and as you push into the south, you have to go through the land of Israel to get into the fertile land of the Nile there with Egypt. And you watch these kingdoms back and forth subject the inhabitants of the land of Israel, of the, of the land of Canaan, to themselves. And the, land, the nations that are in the land that God promised to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, they're all city-states. They're never really consolidated into a singular kingdom. So you sit with the Canaanites, 
the Jebusites, all those different ites that are listed out that were in the land as God is bringing the nation of Israel into the promised land, they're not consolidated into a singular kingdom. There's a variety of city-states. As we've sat with the Philistines, they're the exact same. The Philistines are also a culture that has been imported into the land. And as they've established themselves along the coast, they've dominated the coastal plain and the flat area of, of the land of Israel. They, were, they held on and controlled to the production of iron, so they had greater and harder weapons than the nation of Israel. So there's this constant conflict that's going back and forth between all of these groups of people. When the nation of Israel comes in, who's their king? God's their king. But they're united together as they're the 12 sons of a man named Israel, right? So you have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob's name is changed to Israel. And out of these 12 tribes, they're all interrelated, but they have all this tribal power that's going on. Who's over who and all their different history that that's fed into it, where they've landed in the land, how their leaders have led or not led, all of that is feeding into the political undertones that David is sitting in in this day. So as we sit with David in this moment, Saul is dead. Saul is dead at the hands of the Philistines. So the Philistines have just won a major battle that's brought them out of the coastal plain where all their major, major cities are and has brought them into the middle of Israel in the Jezreel Valley as the power in that area. And now you have the tribes that are now subject to that power to one degree or another, depending on how close they are to the leadership of the Philistines. Now remember, David is all the way in the south in Ziklag as he was in the land of the enemies for almost a year and a half. Now David, after the death of Saul, he's gone through this mourning process. He's penned this song of worship and instructed it to be taught to the children of Israel so that they would remember Saul and Jonathan. David now, at the foundation of what he knows that he has been anointed and called and appointed to be the king of Israel. If you were David, what do you do? How do you, how do you seize control of a fragmented nation, fragmented tribes? All the tribes come together and anoint Saul as king, but when we see Saul's influence, it's really just north of Jerusalem where borders between Benjamin and Ephraim are the, are the two tribes that his authority really consolidated over. We watch him as a general go out to war against the Philistines. In some way, there's relationship between all the other tribes, but you don't see this hard cohesion underneath Saul. And now the tribes, again, they've just spread out from losing a battle. They're all in their tribal areas. And David is in the foundation of what he's to do in his calling to the Lord. He begins it in prayer. He has a simple question. God, do you want me to go up to one of the cities of Judah of my tribe, yes or no? And God says, yes. And David says, to which city? And God sends him to Hebron. Hebron is centrally important to a lot of the Old Testament narrative up to the point that, G, that David conquers Jerusalem and Jerusalem becomes the capital of the nation. So Hebron becomes important all the way back in Abraham's life. So chapter 13 of Genesis, this is the major community that, uh, that Abraham sets roots into. 
You see him eventually travel south to uh, Beersheba, where he also puts roots into that community. But those are the two major communities where Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, this is where they live their lives. The cave of Machpelah, where uh, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, their wives, they're all buried there in Hebron, which is on the southeast side of the modern city of Hebron today. So it says that the, that the 600 men and their families, that they go up with David into the city's plural of Hebron, because Hebron's also not just a city, it's like a county. So it's a county seat for that era, area. If you, see, if you have a Bible map of the, uh, where the allotments of the 12 tribes are in your Bible, it's really helpful to see. Judah has almost all of the south, and Simeon also has uh, his allotments. That tribal allotment is surrounded all the way by Judah in the south. So in a lot of ways, Simeon, the, that tribe lost its authority. I'm not going to go into all that. You can sit in Genesis 49, I believe, is where all these prophecies of Israel over his sons. So this is the climate that David is stepping into. So we saw earlier on when David defeated the Amalekites, the spoil of that battle, he sent his gifts to a variety of cities of, of Judah. So these are his brethren. So when the Lord sends him to Hebron, again, the, the culture knows that God has historically had Samuel anoint David as king. The culture knows that David is Saul's replacement. But only one tribe, David's tribe, is the tribe that comes to David and anoints him as king. And as they anoint David as king, they also give him the word that, hey, it's the men of Jabesh-Gilead. They're the men that went to Bethshan and got Saul's body and, and buried him in honor. So David is not only attempting to honor the men and their valiant behavior and their honoring and love of Saul, which is mirroring David's heart, but David's also sending a, an olive branch to the men of Jabesh, and they're of the tribe of Jen Benjamin. They're loyal to Saul. So he's sending this olive branch to them, praying for them to be strong in the Lord, praying for them to be valiant. And oh yeah, just so you know, the tribe of Judah has just anointed me as king. So this is the climate that David is coming to his kingship in. Now, if you've been anointed by the Lord and called by the Lord and the Lord's given you a very specific office and task to perform in, don't you think when the old guy's dead that you ought to jump right into what God's called you to? What do you think? I hate waiting. Don't you hate waiting? Waiting's great because in the waiting, that's where, that's where the, the um, transformation and the... Transformation is not the right word. Um, what's, the word what's the biblical word? The, butterf the butterfly word. Help me. Tr metamorphosis. Thank you. There's, there's, there's a radical transformation and a process that God takes us that we used to be this, and he makes us an entirely new individual. And this is the image that we've watched in David's life, God preparing him for the position that he's called him to. One of the amazing things to watch about David in this circumstance is he never um, used his power to seize 
what God had willingly just placed into his hands. David always had an open hand with kingship. He had closed hands in other areas, but in this whole idea of being appointed as king, he had a very open hand here. He didn't force, he didn't go out to war or force the other tribes to his authority. He waits for seven and a half years that we're going to see as we travel forward. I give all of this as background um, because all of these political undercurrents uh, they're very important to understand as we, as we continue to travel forward. So verse 8 of chapter 2 says, Abner, the son of Ner, this is Saul's cousin. So we were introduced to Abner at the time that David cuts off Goliath's head. Abner is the one who finds out for Saul exactly the, the family nature of David. We see Abner uh, asleep so to say, well, not so to say, he was asleep when uh, David and Abishai went and took, the, uh, took Saul's jug of water and his spear, and David is yelling from the mountaintop down to Abner, hey, you, sh you didn't do your job in protecting your king. Anyways, this is that Abner. So Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim, and made him king over Gilead, over the Asherites, which nobody knows who that is. Some of the scholars believe it should be the Geshurites, over Jezreel, over Ephraim, over Benjamin, and over all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. Only the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. So Saul is dead. His three sons are dead. Ishbosheth, his name means man of shame, probably was not his given name in Chronicles. He's called Eshbaal, which means he's the man of Baal, which is... You can sit in it in the idea that God, just the general word for God, was Baal at that time before uh, there's this religious emphasis on Baal worship as an individual God, separate from the God who created the heavens and the earth. So some people think Saul named his son just man of God in reference to Yahweh. Others believe that, hey, Saul named his son after a pagan God, and you can sit in that however you choose to sit in it. But what's seen as that a future generation to, um, to avoid calling him by the name of Baal, they're calling him a man of shame. So, but you have Abner is the true strength. He is the military general. The men are following him. And in his attempt to keep power against David, he is setting up the puppet king Ishbosheth, because this Ishbosheth doesn't have any real power. Abner's the man with all of the power, setting up the puppet king, one of Saul's sons. And again, in this, the emphasis on where he's being brought is uh, Mahanaim is to the east of the Jordan River. It's important historically when Jacob is coming back from Laban, 
with his family before he enters into the land, God sends messengers, angels to, uh, to Jacob that he sees and he calls the place Mahane, which means two camps. He has his physical camp and he has the camp of God's angels that he has revealed to him, God letting Jacob know that he was with Jacob as he's coming back to his brother. This is the scene where Jacob sends his family ahead of him, and he remains behind on the Jabbok River, and he, ha- and he has this evening where he is wrestling with God in the flesh. And this whole scene where God changes Jacob's name from this supplanter to in this deceiver that calls, and he calls him Israel, this one who is now governed by God, this prince of God. So this... This community, this is what it's known for historically. It's, it has its own economic value. It has its own military value. So as the Philistines have taken over the Jezreel area, which is where Saul was ruling, they're, they're now the foreign authority. So Abner and all of Saul's followers are now setting up shop on the other side of the Jordan River in a place that's safe, defining Ishbosheth as the king of all of the other 11 tribes, but specifically the tribe of Benjamin, the tribe of Ephraim that are right there, and the other communities. So do you feel all this flavor that's going on? Lots of history here. Again, lots of undertones, and that helps define now in verse 12. Abner, the son of Ner, the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. And Joab, the son of Zariah, and the servants of David went out and met them by the pool of Gibeon. So they sat down, one on one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. Then Abner said to Joab, let the young men now arise and compete before us. All right, here's the picture. Abner in the next chapter is going to sell Ishbosheth out. So some scholars see that this is the beginning where Abner is bringing some of his men. And then Joab is a nephew of David. We're going to get into this in a minute. Joab is the general of David's men. So David is sending his contingent. Ishbosheth and or Abner is bringing their contingent. And what are they talking about? Why are they meeting? We don't have a clue whatsoever. But when these two generals meet with their men, Abner suggests to Joab, hey, let's have the guys entertain us. And what this is supposed to be is a boxing match. These guys are going to wrestle They're going to battle each other. They're going to box each other. They're going to bloody each other. But the point is for amusement. It's for entertainment. But because of the political tensions and the undertones that are going on in the culture, I want you to sit with Abner and Saul's men really quick. If you're one of Saul's guys, what do you think of David? If you're sitting just in Saul's life, take all of his insanity to the side. You have just gone through a war with your brothers where you know that David and his men were on the team of the enemy. You know that David was willing to go to war against your people. God is the one who ends up sending David to the south so that he wasn't part of that. But David represents Saul's enemy. 
And not only that, but in the immediate context of the battle that was just lost, in their culture, in their politics, who could you point your finger at? Right at David. Right at David's men. So as these two groups of men are sitting across this pool of Gibeon, which this is, David's men have come up front. So Hebron's south of Bethlehem. So they've gone up to Bethlehem through Jerusalem. Gibeon's just on the north side of Jerusalem. Mahanaim, so Abner and his men have crossed over the Jordan and they've gone up the hill. And now they're meeting on this it's kind of like an upside-down bowl is what the community looks like. And on top of this hill is a spring. Google it. It's pretty fascinating. There's a gigantic, like that's hole in the circle of the sanctuary. Like triple that. That's how big this hole is in the ground. There's 79 steps that have been carved into the stone that get down to the spring. So here's this natural spring. Out of that natural spring, it's fed into a pool. These guys are lined up on opposite sides of this pool, and hey, let's have us a boxing match for sport, for entertainment. Joab says, all right, let them arise. Let's do this. Verse 15, so they arose and went over by number, 12 from Benjamin, followers of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and 12 from the servants of David. And each one grabbed his opponent, and the word in the Hebrew is literally grabbed his neighbor, you shall love your neighbors yourself, right? That's, that's the word. Grabbed his neighbor, grabbed his friend by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side, in his neighbor's side, so they fell down together. Therefore, the place was called the field of sharp swords, which is in Gibeon. So there was a very fierce battle that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. So, the scene is you have 24 guys, two by two, lined up to wrestle each other, to have a boxing match. They pull out their short swords, grab each other by the head, and they outknife each other, and 24 men drop dead. Why? The, again, we talk about our political undertones and tensions in our two-party system in our country today. This is the two-party system there in Israel that's going on at this time. There's a division between Saul's servants and David's servants. And what they've heard, what they've sat in, the language that they're using to each other, as they go to have a little bout of entertainment with some rounds of fighting where they're going to get bloodied, it gets so fierce and all of those emotions come out that they kill each other. And then that just causes all of the men on both sides to erupt in violence. And we're told that David's men severely beat Ishbosheth's men. And we want to say, yeah, way to go, David, right? But this is civil war. This is not something that anybody is celebrating. And this is the scene that follows. Now, the three sons of Zariah, so Zariah is not a man. Zariah is a woman. Zariah is the sister of David. 
So Joab, Abishai, and Asahel, they're three brothers. These are all uh, the nephews of David, and all three of them are part of the mighty men of David. Abishai, we were introduced to before. He's the one that goes with David to steal that jug of water and that spear uh, from Saul's head that night where Abishai wants to kill Saul, but David doesn't let him. So Joab, Abishai, and Asahel, three tremendous warriors on David's team. Asahel was fleet of foot, means he was fast, as fleet of foot as a wild gazelle. So Asahel, Asahel, thank you, pursued Abner, and in going, he did not turn to the right hand or to the left from following Abner. And Abner is looking behind him, and said to him, are you Asahel? And he, said, and he answers, I am. This is, this is so weird. And Abner said to him, turn aside to your right hand or to your left and lay hold of one of the young men and take his armor for yourself. But Asahel would not turn aside from following him. So Abner again said to Asahel, turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I face your brother Joab? However, he refused to turn aside. Therefore, Abner struck him in the stomach with the blunt end, the, the butt end of the spear. And again, this isn't uh, more than likely it had a metal cap on the end that was also at a point. Um, they find these all over in archaeology where when you plant a spear in the ground, butt down, you know, it's got that hard end to stick in the ground while you're not damaging the sharp end. Anyways, all that to say, the blunt of the spear so that the spear came out of his back. And he fell down there and died on the spot. So it was, as many as came to the place where Asahel fell down and died, they stood still. So picture the scene. Abner and his men are fleeing. Asahel is fast and he is chasing Joab down. They turn around and have this ex exchange. Joab ends up killing Asahel in battle. This is not murder. Encouraging him to turn aside, and he wouldn't. And now Joab and his men are continuing on. Joab and Abishai and their men are now coming upon Asahel's body in the road, and they are standing still. And the rage that they already had... Do you think Joab and Abishai are now even more enraged as they see their brother on the ground? Absolutely. Joab and Abishai also pursued Abner, and the sun was going down when they came to the hill of Ammah, which is before Gia by the road to the wilderness of Gibeon. Now the children of Benjamin gathered together behind Abner and became a unit, so... They're consolidating down into a unit on a hill. They're taking their stand on top of a hill. Then Abner called to Joab and said, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that it will be bitter in the latter end? How long will it be then until you tell the people to return from pursuing their brethren? And Joab said, as God lives, unless you had spoken, surely by the morning all the people would have given up pursuing their brethren. The language is understood to say, Ab, you know, Abner's calling down to Joab, Joab, it's time for tempers to calm down. Is the sword just going to uh, devour forever? You know that the, the result of today is going to be already bitterness in all of our souls. 
And if you continue to go forward in this direction, the, the latter end is just going to be bitterness. And Joab's response was, unless you had said something right now, my men would have hunted you, continued to hunt you down until morning light, putting as many of you to death as possible. But because Joab spoke, tried to calm every down, everyone down, Joab blows the trumpet, and all the people stood still and did not pursue Israel anymore, nor did they fight anymore. Then Abner and his men went on all that night through the plain, crossed over the Jordan, and went through all Bithron until they came to Mahanaim. So they all go back home. Joab returned from pursuing Abner, and when he had gathered all the people together, there were missing of David's servants, 19 men and Asahel, so 20 people on David's team died. But the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin and Abner's men, 360 men who died. Now, whether that includes the 24 men that died earlier, we don't know. I would understand that to be so. But you can see how dominant Joab and his men were against Abner and his men. Then they took Asahel and buried him in his father's tomb, which is in Bethlehem, hometown. And Joab and his men went all night, and they came to Hebron at daybreak. Chapter 3, verse 1 says, Now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, but David grew stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. So again, why Abner and Joab are meeting, we don't know. And whatever that meeting, whatever was supposed to transpire at that meeting, emotions flared, and violence was the product of those emotions. And those emotions are all politically based as you're dealing with these loosely knit tribes together. Each one of them, they have their own upbringing, their own background, their own communities. They're, they're you know, Abner's side has just lost a king and they've appointed the other. Everybody knows who the true strength is, that it's Abner. David's men, they know that David has been anointed by God and that the tribe of Judah has recognized that anointing and uh, gone forward and appointed him as, at this moment, just the tribal king of Judah. In this scene, in this battle, Abner is telling Asahel to not pursue him as the commander of the army, as officer to officer, as the trophy to pursue. Hey, turn aside, you know, kill that guy over there, take his armor, uh, get his spoil. But Asahel has this single-mindedness against Abner for whatever reason. And when you sit in the list of David's mighty men, Asahel is one of these men. So in this conflict between Abner and Asahel, you know, this is... Abner did not want to kill him, but it also tells you what kind of conflict this was between these two um, men who were great warriors in their community. Abner did not want to kill Asahel because he knew the consequences of it. He knew that he would not be able to face Joab, and we're going to watch Joab murder Abner in retribution. As we watch Joab in the future... At David's death, 
David looks at his son Solomon and tells Solomon to execute Joab for his violence, for his harshness, and we'll get into that narrative. But Joab is going to be a very loyal man to David. Joab is going to repetitiously call David on the carpet when David needs to be called on the carpet and get in his face. Joab, you're going to see multiple times, uh, very loyal to Yahweh, but you're also going to watch him that he's he's a very violent man also, as lots of these warriors are. But now you sit in all of this tension. You have the opposing Philistines that are exerting authority. So what is their control over uh, the tribes of Israel at all? There's going to be some there. For David to be appointed as king, what does that do to David's relationship with the Philistines that he's just been hanging out with them for the last year and a half? What kind of tension did that bring up? For the Philistines just to have killed Saul, and now there's Saul's replacement in place. What kind of political tension does that have? As you're sitting with, the Canaanites are still in the land. So the, this, the land is just, it's a political mess Remember at the end of the judges, everybody's just doing what's right in their own eyes. But here God is raising up a man who is after his own heart. And at the very end of, well, the beginning of chapter 3, we have this statement that the house of David is growing stronger and stronger. The emphasis on this growth is the idea of walking. As David and his house are moving forward, they are increasing in strength and authority politically and hopefully spiritually. But as we watch Saul's house, Saul's house is walking down a path that is leading to weakness in their life and the political power of Saul's house. So, Saul's house, all the other tribes, what they should have done, they knew that David has been appointed by Yahweh as king. And rather than submitting themselves to the will of God, what are they doing? They're holding to their own plans for whatever plan and purpose. But we find this heart within all of us that there is to be the house of Saul, the old man, the old woman is to grow weaker and weaker as we follow Jesus. And as we follow Jesus, as we walk with him, the house of David, the spiritual house is to grow stronger and stronger. So for this imagery, turn to Romans chapter seven. Remember the imagery that we're sitting in between the house of Saul and the house of David, you're sitting in a civil war. As you sit in the spiritual imagery that's being provided consistently between Saul and David, you're watching Saul as the man of the flesh, and you're watching David as a man of the spirit, a man that is pursuing and that has God's own heart, yes? So now when we sit with the Apostle Paul as he is writing this major theological document to the church in Rome, Paul is sitting with our own internal civil war. We're going to begin in chapter 7, kind of diving headfirst into the middle of a context. Paul says, I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one, me, The one I want to do good, the one who wills to do good, I find a law that evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, 
But I see another law in my members, in my, in my body, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. So Paul's talking about every single one of us. We sit in this internal civil war. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And I love that he, Paul just breaks in the middle of his document, his teaching, all that he's going on, and he just breaks into praise. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. We're not going to go through all of chapter 8. We'll get through a handful of verses here. I would encourage you later to go read through this entire chapter. Fabulous. There is therefore now no condemnation to those, who are who, to those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus communicated, I did not come to condemn the world. The world was already condemned by the law. The entire world is subject to sin and the consequence and punishment of sin is death. The entire world is condemned. I did not come to condemn, but I came to save because God loves everyone. Therefore, those who have faith in Jesus, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, even though you're sitting in a civil war, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, in other words, we, it's impossible for us to obey God's law perfectly, so therefore the law is weak to make us righteous because it can't do because of our weakness. What did God do? God did it by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Again, sitting back with, here you have the house of Saul walking, and they are walking according to the flesh, and in their flesh they are growing weaker and weaker. The house of David is not walking according to the flesh. They are walking according to the Spirit. They are walking in obedience to God. And as they move forward in life, they are growing stronger and stronger in the Lord and what the Lord has them do. Verse 5, for those who live according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh. But, the lo but those who live according to the Spirit the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. I love that sentence right there because when we have our minds and our hearts focused on the Lord, it doesn't matter what external civil wars and what external conflicts are going on. You can have complete peace and total joy in the Lord as you were aimed at him, walking in his spirit, trusting in him, glorifying him, worshiping him, submitting to him, trusting in him for salvation, 
looking to him to be your all in all. The civil war may be going on on the outside, but you in your relationship with the Lord can be an absolute total peace in his life. What a declaration. I love it and may we all live it. Because the carnal mind is enmity. It's, it's at war against God. It's the enemy of God. It's not subject to the law of God. And look at this. Nor indeed can be. The carnal mind can't be subject to God. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you, simply by faith in Christ. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin. But the spirit is life because of righteousness. And all the imagery Paul's already talked about in this, that we are dead and buried with Christ in his death. Through baptism in Christ, we have been raised, resurrected in his life, in his righteousness. Just awesome. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you, which I love too. We're not just looking to the future glorified body. You know what? Everything's going to be good and peace and I'll be saved and have all of Jesus's righteousness when he comes back, when I'm in his presence. This world, this life, it's just misery. I'm not going to have any hope, any peace. I'm not going to be able to overcome sin. You know, all these Eeyore kind of attitudes were here promised. What does he promise? that he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to this mortal body. What a promise. Freedom, peace, life, light, all of it is a guaranteed gift to each and every person who makes the choice to walk in a way that is following Jesus and not in opposition to him. The flesh is always in opposition to the Lord. The Spirit, always in unity. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors. We owe something, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live now and forevermore. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. What a... These, again, these, these, are, these are words to go sit in and meditate in and believe and hold on to. But this reality that you were the son of wrath, a child of disobedience, and because God loved you so much that he sent his only son to die for your sins, so that as you look to his death and you look to his resurrection by simple faith, that God says, you're now my child. I have looked into this world, and out of all humanity, God has chosen you to adoption. What adoption means, you are his legal heir. All that is his, he is saying, is now yours. And again, all that this communicates, it is, it is 
overwhelming to the human soul that we get a call, the creator of the heavens and the earth and all of his power, all of his might, all of his holiness, all of the stuff that we lack and that we know it, we get all of it in him and we get a cry out, dad, that intimacy, it's just, own it. Verse 16, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we might also be glorified together. He goes on, talks about suffering, and ends with, there is nothing that can take us from the love of God. Amen? So we sit in David's life. I want you to read ahead. But I want you to think about, worship team, come on up. I want you to think about as we read ahead and move ahead in David's life. At what point in his life would you say, there's the day that it was the best? In my mind, I, I have chapter 7 of 2 Samuel. This is when God shows up and gives a covenant to David, just a high point of his life. But there's an expectation that I have as I read the life and narrative of David because he is lifted up so much that we forget about all of the hardships of his life. His life in the Spirit was not easy at all. God shows up on multiple occasions gives him promises, gives him this incredible covenant of a house forever, of a king forever of his descendants, which ultimately is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But there is never a point when I look at David's life and say, there's the day where everything was perfect. That's the day that we're aiming for. But the thing that David communicates to me in the midst of all of his conflicts on the outside and all of the conflicts that he has on the inside, all the war that's going on, that man truly knew how to find peace and direction in his creator. And that's the image that he gives to me. In the midst of this civil war, in the midst of this conflict, in the midst that he's been appointed as the one to bring unity to tribes that are in disunity, God, how? And he waits in this community seven and a half years. He is reigning over a singular tribe, not fulfilling what he knows is God's will and God's desire. He waits. He images this. He knows that God loves him. He knows that God is there with him. He has constant prayer and praise for the Lord. And this is what David images for me. There is success in the inner soul, in relationship with God, and in the outward life as we simply make the choice. God, I don't even know what spirit is, but out of the passage I just read, I know that you are spirit. I know that you have made my spirit alive that images you in all of your fullness. I can't wait to have that full knowledge and that full revelation in the future when I get to open my eyes and I get to live in your inheritance for all eternity, oh my. But again, just out of what we just read through today in this life, we get to have that life, we get to have that peace, that hope, that strength in this mortal body, that yeah, the civil war, the conflict is always going on internally, but you know what? The old man's dead. So reckon yourself to be dead to sin and alive in Christ. And we're promised, 
or promised. His spirit will give life and strength to your mortal bodies. His righteousness. His direction for how do I raise an Isaiah in this culture? How do I glorify you, God? How do I image you? How do I trust you with this messed up mind? Here I am, Lord. Have your way among us. So as we turn to worship, as we turn to communion to remember the sacrifice, the gifts that we have been given in the blood of Jesus Christ, may you be washed in his blood. May you receive that promise of the new hearts, the new covenant. May you trust in him that you have been given the down payment of his Holy Spirit within. Lord, we worship you. We yield to you. We love you. We long for you. Bless our fellowship with you and with one another today, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.